Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. A lot of kids, when they start to talk, the first thing that they say are like, you know, mama, dada, or, or what have you, and a lot of other words. For me, my first thing I ever said was a sentence. Uh, and that sentence was, I do it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a whole sentence, and I do it. And so my mom would get so frustrated with me because I was the kid who wanted to do everything myself. I dressed myself, I would put on whatever I wanted. My shirt would be on inside out, but I had done it myself and I was very proud and no one could touch me and no one could, like, I was just gonna do it. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that has followed me uh, through the course of my life. But yeah, I do it. That was, <laughs> that's where it started. From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. There are those professions that kids grow up imagining themselves doing. Doctor, teacher, firefighter. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think a lot of kids grow up thinking I'm going to be a diversity, equity, and inclusion expert. You can't be it if you don't see it, right? So maybe that's changing now, as DEI officers are taking on increasingly high-profile roles within companies and as outside advisors. Sina Hodges is one of them. She's the founder of The Woke Coach, a Minneapolis-based company that offers programs for businesses and individuals designed to help them understand issues of racism, bias, allyship, and help them become more understanding, empathetic, and anti-racist. But true to my thesis, Sina did not grow up wanting to be a DEI coach. She thought she'd be a doctor or a scientist. And it wasn't until her third year of college that she realized she didn't really like science all that much. So she shifted her focus to English. Sina went on to spend several years working in the theater. She earned a master's in theater management and producing at Columbia University in New York and worked on Broadway, marketing big shows, which eventually led her to the Guthrie in Minneapolis. But Sina's very first job after college was with the Urban League in South Carolina, and that experience really started her journey toward the important work she's doing today. One of the things that was happening in the state of South Carolina at that time was that the Confederate flag was still flying atop the State House dome. And um, it was an eyesore and it was, you know, problematic. And one of the things that happened is that the folks at the Urban League partnered with the NAACP uh, essentially to, to get legislation passed to get that flag down off the dome. Mm -hmm. And um, we did a number of things. The first thing that happened is that um, the NAACP levied economic sanctions um, against the state. And so the first thing that started happening was that people who would come there with their NBA teams or, you know, any any sports or athletics or folks who were coming to have big conferences didn't come to the state because they didn't want to be branded as racist. Hmm. So um, the state started losing a lot of money. And um, what we did back then, this was in the year 2000, 
we had the first uh, King Day at the Dome march. And it was on uh, Dr. King's holiday, on the Dr. King holiday. Mm-hmm. And Allison, we ended up bringing 60,000 people to wow. the state. Yeah. And um, for a march and a rally. And because economic sanctions had been levied against the state, no one rented a hotel room. No one so much as bought a bottled water. <laughs> no one bought gas in the state. So all these big buses that came in from across the country, no one spent any money. So that's amazing. That was a yeah, that was an important piece of it. Uh, you know, the other thing is what's what's interesting about that whole time is that we were having all these conversations, and our key messaging was uh, take it down. Mm-hmm. So we just kept saying take it down, take it down. And the reality of it is that I learned the one of the biggest lessons of my career that sticks with me right now. And it's really about clarity of message and being really clear about what it is that you want. Mm-hmm. Because we asked them to take it down. And you know what they did, Allison? What? They, they took the flag down off of the dome and they put it on a pole in <laughs> front of the state house. No. Uh-huh. This is why Bree Newsom was able to climb up the pole and, and snatch right. the flag down at some point in history, right? Right. And so they, they took it down. And, and actually, it was closer to your face because when you're driving down the street, there's the flag right there on the pole. And so I said, okay, so you have to be super, super clear because we should have said, take it down. Don't put it on the ground, <laughs> put it in a museum, you know, yeah, but, right. but all of that, we needed to say all of those things. And, um, you know, the really sad part about it is that that flag did not come down until those nine parishioners were murdered in mother Emanuel AME church, um, back in 2015. Hard to believe. Yeah. How, how did that, how do you feel like that, that episode, that incident um, impacted your trajectory and your work. How, yeah. Do you remember how you felt going through that? You know, I, I remember knowing that we needed to make a change, right? And mm-hmm. knowing that it was amazing that I got to be a part of that work. But I also remember feeling like when it was, you know, when it was all over and, and the legislation passed and it came down and it went on the poll, I felt so defeated, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and I honestly felt like, okay, okay, that was some progress, but we're nowhere near done. And if we don't um, continue to put pressure in every single place on every single issue, we're we're not going to get to a place where we have equity. Mm -hmm. And so I knew, I've always known that it was important to to lead in a manner that always tried to, to seek equitable circumstances. But I also really, really knew that it was important to never, ever turn away from understanding what injustice it looks like and what it does for so many people, right? Yeah. We have to figure out how to create just and equitable circumstances, period. Well said. And it's what I, yeah, it's what I try to do every day. So you you had that foundation. You you sort of had discovered your your love of that work, of the nonprofit work, of of, you know, of educating people, of fighting for equity. And then you had this pretty significant chapter where you went into theater work. Talk about that. I mean, were you were you looking? Was it was it a break? Was it like I can make an impact with this work in another industry or on a stage or or what was the thinking? Yeah, you know, to to make that pivot from you know working a, a day to day job to to going to work at the theater, it was. Um, by the time I left the Urban League, I'll, I'll be honest, I was tired. Mm-hmm. I was tired. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think folks who are kind of waking up, especially over the past year, what you might recognize is that 
once you start to see and witness injustice, you can't unsee it, yeah. right? And it's absolutely everywhere. And, you know, sometimes when you work at smaller nonprofits, you wear so many hats. Because when I was there at the Urban League, I was working on a program to reunite fathers uh, who were coming out of prison with their children. I was working on a program trying to help uh, women get skills for jobs. I was working with foster youth. So there were so many, you know, no one had one program. Mm -hmm. There were so many um, key issues that we were working on. And I think the thing that we all have to recognize about ourselves is that if we take on too much, we will, we will, you know, it's hard. It's hard to take on so much. Sure. You know, I spent a few years um, with this like personal mantra that's kind of silly, but it's true. Uh, the mantra that I had for a few years is like, you know what, if it all goes to hell, I'll just go stay at my mom's house. <laughs> Give me six months, I'll get it together and then I'll figure it out, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. But, um, but, but I think that, you know, and I know that saying that is a it's a it's a privilege to be able to to say that and and to look at my, my circumstance that way and quite frankly to have a circumstance that um that affords me that but but it was just I you know at a point in your life you just have to bet on yourself yeah and the people that are most successful are the ones that continue to bet on themselves time after time after time so be honest were you really good were you a star um <laughs> Were you like the leading oh my gosh. roles so in all the community been, theater plays? No, I was decent. <laughs> and here's, here's, here's why. My husband and I laugh about this because my husband actually is a professional actor. Uh -huh. We laugh about this all the time because for me, when I was on stage, there's a thing that's called being in the moment, mm -hmm. right? And for me, I could never really be in the moment because I'd be there present on the stage with my scene partners, but I would be, I would know what was going on in the audience at the same time. And I would like, I would, I would have my mind in many places. And that's not what you need in order to be a really focused uh, actor. That sounds more and like a so director. That or like a facilitator, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And <laughs> so, so yeah, so, so no, I mean, I was good. When I, when I focused, I was good. But it's not something that, um, you know, nobody was ever going to give me an Academy Award for that. <laughs> you were, it was, it's right back to your youth. You were the decider. You, you, yes. <laughs> you make <laughs> exactly. the rules. So, exactly. okay, so so then, so you stayed in theater and kind of got into a, more of a marketing role, kind of a behind the scenes role? So, so what ended up happening was I was doing that work and I was working at the utility company. And as I said, I was like, something's got to give. Yeah. So then I applied to go to school at Columbia University and they have this program that's called theater, uh, it's a theater um, management and producing program. Mm -hmm. And so essentially it's a program that teaches folks how to, run theaters hmm. so it's, it's all about like the behind this it's the business of theater okay so that's essentially what that is yeah and so um what i knew was that i wanted to work in theater i also knew that i didn't necessarily i didn't have to be on the stage that wasn't what my calling was but i wanted to be in the space mm -hmm. so i applied and um, got accepted to columbia and then i moved to new york city and entered this program where they teach you everything about how to, how to, you know, soup to nuts, all of the things that you need to, to know about producing. When I was working on Broadway, it was that interesting time where um, it was like Celebrityville. So every celebrity that existed that wanted to be on Broadway was on Broadway. So mm -hmm. I was working on shows like Fences with Viola Davis and Denzel Washington or um, House of Blue Leaves with Edie Falco and Ben Stiller. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it, it just it I was I worked on Chris Rock's Broadway premiere. Um, it's the, you could Google the title of the play. I probably can't say it here. 
Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, so he and Bobby Cannavale. So it was it was you know Sutton Foster, all kinds of all kinds of things. Uh, Kathleen Turner, mm-hmm. uh, she was in a um, a production called High. So I spent a lot of time doing that work. It was it was fascinating. It was interesting. You met all kinds of people. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, I was um, out front waiting for you know a lot of times when you have the opening night party as a publicist, you have to wait for the talent to get there so that you can show them to uh, to the press. And I was standing outside, and in New York City, there's a no smoking ordinance, so you can't smoke inside of of any um, buildings. Mm-hmm. And I'm standing there with my colleague, and all of a sudden, Liza Minnelli walks up. Mm. Liza Minnelli is like full on smoking. Of course, she's Liza. <laughs> like, she's Liza. She's smoking. And so my my colleague looks at me and he's like, "Are you going to say something?" And I was like, "Hell no, I'm not going to tell Liza Minnelli she can't smoke. I don't care. I don't care. Just I love it. Not me. I love it." What's interesting is we think of theater as so progressive and, you know, so inclusive. And yet I know for you, your diversity and equity journey didn't begin when you started The Woke Coach. Even when you were in the theater world, you were starting to see that there were some there was some education that was needed. Yeah. You know, I think the thing that's interesting is that any industry that we think of, there are always inherently some inequitable practices. Mm hmm. And it's, you know, some of it is because, well, we've always done it this way. And some of it is because we've never thought about what inclusion could actually look like in practice, number one. And number two, we've never actually tried to be inclusive. Mm -hmm. We've just done the thing the way that we've done it. And so a lot of times when you do the thing the way that you do it, oftentimes you leave people out. You know, earlier I talked about the fact that our lives are just an amalgamation of our lived experiences. Well, if you have a lived experience that doesn't... um, that where you've never been around someone who's not exactly like you, then you don't even think about others when you're making your day-to-day consideration. Mm-hmm. You don't think about others if you're in a position of power and you're hiring. You don't think about others when you're writing plays. You don't, like, it's just, it's just not something that you think about regularly. And so when we are, you know, after hundreds of years of that, it, it's, it's pretty callous, right? Yeah. So at the point that we are at right now, there does have to be a reckoning where we're starting to really have more active conversations around about, you know, who's at the table and not only are folks at the table, do they have the same meal? Like do are, if they're at the table and they just have an appetizer, that's not enough. Right. They need the full three courses. Right. right. So how did this begin? You're, you're working in theater. You you've got, you know, you've got some marketing experience. You've got some nonprofit experience. What started? You've got life experience. What? What? How did this all kind of crystallize for you? Sure, sure. I, you know, when I was working in theater, toward the end of it, I think, I, you know, to be honest, I was, I was a little disillusioned because what I wanted was to see more progress at a faster clip. Mm-hmm. And people kept saying things to me like, "Sina, you should wait, or you shouldn't be so vocal about the things that you think we need to be doing, or we're trying." And for me, it felt like it was more lip service than actually getting down and dirty and, and really figuring out how to make things different. And what do you mean and by I, that? I mean, what what in the theater? You mean, were you were you seeing prejudices, bias? Were you seeing? Of course. You know, here's the thing. That representation. Mm-hmm. You know, who's who's on whose plays are we producing? First and foremost, mm. who's who's in these plays? Mm-hmm. Who's directing these plays? Who is making the wigs for these plays? Like all of all of these sure. things. Who's who's in the audience? Right. Mm-hmm. All of all of that. Um, and so when it started to just be, you know, old white men all the time, that hmm. felt like it's it's a sliver of, of the populace. 
So how are we telling the stories that are supposed to move us to action and change our lives? You know, when we think about the arts in general, the one thing that people universally say about the arts is how much it changes us, Mm -hmm. how much it creates a level of awareness, how much it shines light on things in, in, in places that we've never even ventured to think about. And so if that's the case, if there's still that singular narrative, there's so much that we're not talking about. Right. There's so much that we're not engaging with. And, you know, by the time I got ready to, to go, I, I felt like in the moment that I was in, I feel like I was ahead of the moment where hmm. I was. Because I was also, it's not that people weren't having the same thoughts that I was having, but people weren't stirred up enough to want to move to action. And when you're working in an organization and you're the only person who really is saying, we've got to do something about being more inclusive. We've got to be more equitable. We've got to start with some anti-racist practices and policies. It can be like pushing a boulder up a hill by yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not necessarily an impossible feat, but what it takes to do it and what it will take away from you, from your person is really hard. Mm -hmm. And, and, And at what point is the sacrifice worth it? Right. You know, you, right. You, it's hard to do it alone. When we get back, Cena's career takes a sharp turn as she leaves theater to start The Woke Coach. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.platinumbankmn.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. Sina was ready for a change but didn't know exactly what to do. And then it came to her in a dream. I was asleep one night. And, um... I was dreaming. And in my dream, the woke coach came to me. I'm not making this up. Like literally it came to me in my dream. Something spoke to me. It was like the woke coach. I I woke up. I didn't know what it was. I didn't even know where to put it. And um, I went to a therapy session that same week. And I was talking to my therapist and, you know, my therapist is amazing. Uh, She's a, she's a person with a, um, a British accent. So when she tells me to get my stuff together in that, you know, I feel way less attacked, <laughs> but, she, but she is like no nonsense. And she was like, Sina, I don't know what you're doing and let's figure this out. And, and I said, you know, I had a dream and um, the dream, it was, um, it's called the woke coach. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I do. And she was like, that's amazing. And she said, get your credit card. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? She's like, no, Sina, get your credit card. So I go get my credit card. And when I turn around with my credit card, she's got her laptop open and she's on Squarespace. And we buy the domain name in my therapy session. Wow. That's, mm-hmm. Did she charge you extra for that, too? <laughs> no. <laughs> they always no, do. I, it's, it's weird, though, because it's, it's not like she was um, not like she was a massage therapist. Like if she was a massage therapist, she'd probably be, you know, shouting it from the roof. But because she's my therapist therapist, yeah. she's, she's not telling. I tell the story and she never tells the story because, you know. So you ha- you So know. now you've got a name and a domain. Did you have any idea what you were going to do? No idea. No idea. I was just like, I, I probably had it for a year before I even started the company. Um, you know, when I, when I moved out of theater, I moved into philanthropy. And it, it was around the time that... 
I would say that conversations about racial equity started happening in earnest. But the other thing that happens in the in the space of philanthropy is that sometimes it can move very slowly. Mm-hmm. And so when you know philanthropy moves slowly, and for me, I'm from theater. I'm from the arts. Mm-hmm. And do you know what the mantra is for theater, Allison? No, tell me. The show must go on. Oh, that right? mantra. Yes, I have heard <laughs> yeah, the that. the show must go on. Yeah. Break a leg, so, show must go break on, a, yes. Yeah, break a leg, show must go on. And so the reality of that is how that translates is, you know, it's 7 o'clock, the house is open, the, the show starts at 7.30. You broke the prop, put some tape on it. Somebody broke a leg, call in the understudy. Like, there's there's always a way to keep it going. Right, like it doesn't. Right. It doesn't stop. Okay. Um, you know, the only thing that has stopped theater in the last 50 years is COVID. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like the show has always gone on. It, it hasn't stopped. And so um, when you come from a background where you feel like the show must go on and then you go into a place where people want to think about things and they want to have a few meetings and then they want to do the needs assessment. For me, it, it just wasn't a fit because I just wanted to do do things differently. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, at a point I was just like, this isn't this isn't where I need to be right now. This is, this is okay. Okay. It's, it's trying to work, but it's not working. Mm-hmm. And it was the thing where it was like an ill-fitting pair of pants. Right. And this is like, this is my truth around this. It was like an ill-fitting pair of pants and I wanted them to fit and I wanted them to be really cute, but they just, they were not. Hate that. And that, yeah, you hate it. Right. Cause you're like, Oh man, I, I, paid, I paid all the money for these and I thought <laughs> they were going to be great, but now I got to send them back. And so it just, it just wasn't working out the way that uh, I, I envisioned it working for myself. And at that point, it was like, okay. So I parted ways with philanthropy, and then I started the Woke Coach. And when I started it at first, I was still in that place where, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs, because you, you get to that point where you feel like, I'm going to start this business, but you there's a sense of sometimes where you don't feel as secure in, like, bringing in money. So you say to yourself things like, I'm going to do these 12 things. Mm, sure. <laughs> and at first, Hedge your like, bets. we do PR. Yeah, we do marketing. We do, you know, because you try to sometimes you can try to do that thing where you, where you catch all uh-huh. and you use and you take everything that you're good at instead of taking those things and synthesizing them down and saying, OK, we do this one thing and we do this one thing really well. I was doing everything. And that lasted for about oh three months. And then I was like, okay, no, you don't do these 12 things. You do these three things. And then, you know, and, and now we've still, we've narrowed it down from there, but it was, it was a a point of it's, it is exponentially scary. It is like jumping into the unknown and you just, you don't know what's going to happen. And you feel like, um, hopefully this will all work out, but you have faith Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, I, I got that I do it. So I knew that I was going to do it. Um, and I, I figured I'd, I'd figure it out. So what, it out. what was the one thing that you finally zeroed in on and how did you figure it out? Yeah. So the one thing that I finally zeroed in on is our flagship program that's called From Ally to Accomplice. And essentially the, the way that I figured it out is, you know, this business started mostly because I was having conversations with people. And it was probably the conversations were probably happening when we in, in 2016, around the time of that you know presidential election and 2015, 2016, where it was it was feeling like we were starting to become really splintered and not really talking about the thing, but talking around the thing and saying stuff to people that what you know, it, it was it was not um, our best selves. We weren't all being our best selves. And so essentially, we started having those conversations and people would 
I suppose my Facebook page was probably one in which I was just like letting it rip. I don't, <laughs> this is years ago, so I don't really remember. But I know that I would get lots of messages from people on the side and they would say things like, uh, Sina, I really just don't understand. Can we have coffee? And then I would go and I would have coffee with people. And then I'd be like, oh my gosh, my head hurts and my heart hurts. And I paid for my own coffee. Yeah. <laughs> okay, wait a second. Right? Wait a second. I have to assume these coffees were with white people who didn't yeah, understand. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, let me break it all the way down. Yeah. It would be white folks in my DMs. And and it wouldn't be sometimes it would be white folks that I knew, sometimes it would be white folks that I that I knew because of someone else. And you know, have these conversations and at a point it's like, well, I like to talk, so let's talk. Mm-hmm. And then what I started to realize was that it was so it was so loaded with emotional labor. And I know some people are probably listening and saying, how were you having conversations? I think back in 2015, it was different. Mm-hmm. It, it was different in 2015. Now it's completely different. Um, and back then, when I started having those conversations, it was OK in the beginning. But then I started to put into place, I would say to folks who would ask me, I was like, do you believe that black lives matter? And then if they said to me, well, you know, I'd be like, nope, reason book, we can talk later. You know, <laughs> like, like I put that as my standard for engaging because it it just was, it was a mess. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I was like, you know what, Tina, you just got to finally monetize this. And so I'd had the domain name and I, you know, it was there. And I was like, how do you make this into the thing that you want to do? Because here's the thing, Allison, I always love having the conversation. Mm-hmm. I always love helping people understand and unpack the things that they don't understand and unpack. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to do it for free. I get it. <laughs> I hear you. It's also yeah. got to be, you know, back to even the work you were doing in the nonprofit. It's really emotional, exhausting work as you're having these conversations. And, you know, maybe I would hope for the most part people are well-intended, especially if they took the risk of reaching out to you. To say, mm-hmm, I don't mm-hmm. understand. But I mean, wow. It, I mean, and, and I've heard a lot of people say, you know, this past year, a lot of um, black friends saying, you know, it's not my responsibility you yeah. know, to yeah. educate you. And it's not. And it's not. It's, it, is, it is an active choice. You know, you'll find people along the continuum. Some, some um, black folks will say, I'll spend time with you. I'll talk to you. Some black folks will be like, don't even don't even look in my direction. Hmm. It, it just depends. But I do feel like. I'm okay to do it in in as in as much as for me, my why is that I want us to live in an equitable society. Mm-hmm. I want justice for everyone. And so for me, I'm happy to do that and be well compensated to do that and to have these conversations and to and to give folks insight into all the ways that they're screwing up that they don't even know they're screwing up. So you started developing this program and thinking this this is actually a business. I've already got the name. I've already got the domain. Um, did, were you able to sell it and who did you, did you go to businesses right away or, or was, was it more one-on-one? So initially it was more one-on-one. Initially I, I would do cohorts for the general public. And so I would advertise it just through my existing networks. And then I would fill it with people who either I knew or people who knew people that I knew that wanted to do the work. And so I did that probably about four times. Um, and you know, the way the program worked initially was it's, eight month commitment. You get in there. We do, uh, we do sessions every month. We have these conversations. There's homework. There's like, it's a very robust uh, program. And who would do it? I mean, who, who were the people who wanted to to invest that? Sure. Most of the, the, most of the folks that did it um, initially were white folks. Um, 
skewed mostly toward uh, femmes or women-identified folks who wanted to do this work. They would be in different positions. Some of them were entrepreneurs themselves. Mm-hmm. Some of them were some of them were CEOs for nonprofit organizations. Some of them worked in the corporate space and worked in HR. So it was it was a lot of different people who were just really trying to figure out like how do I fit in? How do I how do I better understand myself so that I can better um, assist the folks that are around me? Mm-hmm. So it was it was a lot of folks. It was it was it varied, but mostly mostly white folks who were like, okay, help me figure this out. And then you started getting calls to come to businesses and do it. For- and then, I, yeah. And then I started getting calls to come into people's businesses. And so we have, our client base is so, it's wild, Allison, because we go all the way from like small nonprofits to like global companies. Mm-hmm. So we, we work with, our work bands the gamut. I mean, the reality of the situation is um, the point that I recognize after doing DEI work for all this time is that a lot of people in places have the same inherent problems. Which are? and every, Which are, uh, there's a fear. Um, people need to, to have more diverse workforces. Uh, the culture is not as good as it could possibly be because it's not inclusive. There, there's some basic things that happen in a lot of places. And most folks feel like, you know, ours is worse than other people's. And it's it's not good. Let's be honest. It's not good if your culture is not great, and if BIPOC employees feel like they can't show up as their full selves. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not what you want for anyone. But I do feel like this time that we've had during the pandemic has been um, helpful in as much as it it has exposed inequity on so many levels. Right. And it was time to be at home. You know, who could be at home? Mm-hmm. You know, who had the equipment that they needed? Who like they You know. When it came to who was actually contracting the virus and dying from the virus, those numbers showed inequity. So, so it was it was everywhere. If if we're going to keep looking, you know, criminal justice and everything that has happened on that front since we since we've been at home, the murder of George Floyd, we've seen so much over the past year. Well, and so at at this point, there um, there's really no denying that we have to have these conversations and that we really have to do. Um, we have a moral imperative to put our best foot forward. So I'm curious, number one, I have to think your your phone must have started ringing off the hook this summer. Yeah. And, and yeah. How, how did you deal with that? I mean, you as an individual, you live here in Minnesota where we were, you know, ground zero, where so much yeah. of this racial reckoning began. You're seeing yeah. it play out in your own community. It's your work suddenly everybody's interested in DEI. Yeah. There has to be part of you that's like, where were you last year? Oh, Allison, let's, <laughs> let's okay, we're, if we're going to talk, let's talk. I mean, when it, when George Floyd was murdered and the phone started ringing and the email started coming in and, um, you know, there's a lot of things that went through my mind. Um, I was very angry initially. Mm-hmm. I was angry, um, you know, first and foremost, because George Floyd was murdered. But then also I was angry that um, it had taken people so long to to really get it together. Yeah. And the thing that was compounding that anger was the manner in which people were even reaching out. What do you mean? Um, so people will send you an email and then they'll call you and then they'll send you two more emails. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Your emergency in this moment does not constitute me like changing everything about how we do business mm. in this moment for you. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the one of the missteps that some folks made 
was not giving DEI practitioners grace hmm. in that moment. Mm -hmm. Because what, what folks have to understand at the end of the day is that while we do, and while I'll talk about myself, while I do this work, the work of creating equitable, inclusive, and anti-racist environments, while I do that work for a living, there's, I'm always impacted, mm -hmm. right? I'm, I'm always impacted by what's happening in the world. I'm impacted when someone is murdered. I'm impacted when people want to post it on Facebook, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. So you have to see it all day, every day, every time you go on the Instagram. Yeah. So there's, there's a level of that folks just don't, um, sometimes white folks can put their own desire for learning ahead of the feelings of other people. Hmm. And so I want to encourage people to have more grace around their process, even when they're seeking to, to learn. Yeah. Right. Because it's been hundreds of years that we've lived with the circumstance of inequity and blatant racism. And it's going to take us some time to get out of here, but also because you finally have read a book or you finally saw a thing and you said to yourself, Oh my goodness, I have to do something. That's great. But it doesn't mean that you get to rush people. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So do does this moment, does this time give you hope, though? Do, do you is, is it different? I mean, the conversations you're having now, the approach that businesses and and CEOs are taking now, do you feel like it is, you know, not just a moment, but a movement to be cliche? But but you know what I mean? Yeah, it feels way different. You know, it feels different. And. You know, you can parse any situation because I feel like there there are still places where, you know, we there are lots of places where we still need improvement. There are lots of companies who said full-throatedly last summer, Black Lives Matter, and have done absolutely nothing since then, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So so we, we still have a ways to go. But I do think that the conversation has shifted. I think the intentionality behind the conversation has shifted. And I hear people now having conversations that I never would have expected to hear having the conversations before. Right. I, I feel like before I would have to help people understand why my work was necessary. Mm -hmm. Now my job is to understand whether or not that company is the best partner for us. Hmm. And that's a totally different conversation. Yes, absolutely. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, the, the thing that I notice the, the most in, you know, I'm in the business of talking to people and, and being nosy and asking a lot of questions um, is just there, there does seem to be more of a freedom to discuss hard topics, right? Yeah. That, that we have to talk about this, that, you know, if I'm doing an awards program and we don't have enough diversity of nominations. I mean, we've got to talk about that. We've got to talk, exactly. you know, we've got to fix that. Yes. And it can't just Absolutely. be internal anymore. No. And it can't be performative or, or you can't tokenize people either. Right. Mm -hmm. So how do we do the things that are really authentic right. and allow people to show up as their full selves in every situation and circumstance? You know, we've lived here collectively for a very long time, black people, white people, indigenous people, like we, we're all here. Mm -hmm. And and the ways in which we engage with each other have not been the best. Mm -hmm. They've not been equitable. We've not included people. And, and it's been OK for a long time to just really have things that are white centric and just do it yeah. because that's that's the way that it's been done. But it was it was wrong then, <laughs> you know, <Right. laughs> we just we just weren't calling it in as much. But it, it was it was wrong then. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think there are a lot of, you know, businesses are results oriented and, and let's say that, you know, best case scenario, they've had a, a, a real 
you know, awakening. They're really committed. They really want to do something, not just talk about it. What's working? What What are you seeing when you think about the the businesses that that you work with? I mean, what what can we expect, and 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 how are you guiding them? Sure. You know, I think the number one thing that I say for folks all the time is when you think about leading companies, and this means, you know, whether you're a leader or a manager, there's a certain there's certain characteristics that people associate it with. You know, like this person is strong, or they're a visionary, or they're empathetic. And what we've never said is a leader has to be anti-racist, right? Mm -hmm. But now a leader has to be anti-racist. And what happens is because that's something that you don't learn in business school, that's not something that you talk about with your colleagues, it means that it's, it's something that you have to really internalize and really make true for yourself. So the thing that's most important about the work that we do is that piece of self-awareness. Hmm. Because what really can't happen is, you know, of course you could hire someone to come into your company and tell you to do these 10 things so that you can be more inclusive and you can check some boxes. But the reality of the situation is that if we want this to be sustainable, we have to teach folks how to fish. And if you need to know how to fish, it means that you need to have that level of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You have to put your oxygen mask on first before you move about the cabin. And that's that part of it that will make the work sustainable. Because if you come in and you tr- just try to layer some DEI and anti-racist practices on top of an existing culture, yeah, it might work for a minute, maybe. But because folks don't inherently understand what it is they're doing and they don't understand the why, they don't understand the history, they don't understand the underlying harm, then they're moving, they're, they're operating from a completely different place. Mm-hmm. Once folks understand their own level of um, self-awareness, what do I know? What do I, what do I need to learn? How do I need to show up differently? And what does that mean for my company every single day? Once folks can, can reckon with that, then you can make all kinds of change because you can become more comfortable having the conversations. You know, one of the things that I see that's, uh, that happens a lot is that folks are just uncomfortable even having the conversation. Mm-hmm. I, have a, uh, I have a client that I was working with and we go into the room and we talk about their business goals and they can like lob that conversation. And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You ask a question about DEI outcomes and it is the most, like it was the most stilted thing I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, wow. Yeah. So do you notice how easy it was to have this conversation and how hard it was to have this other conversation? What we want to do is make that second conversation just as fluid as the first. Hmm. So, so that piece of self-awareness and really understanding what you know and what you don't know. And also it's that point of recognizing that, you know, someone said to me the other day that someone in her, this is a white woman who, who runs a local business who said to me the other day that someone who works on her staff said that there were things that were happening that were racist. And then she said, but I'd never seen it. And I said, would you have ever seen it? And I said, you're, I said, you're the leader. You're the, the thing that you see um, are the things that are, are made most apparent to you, mm-hmm. right? A lot of things happen that you don't see. Also, recognize that when people of color uh, are working for you and they tell you about their experiences, at this point in time, stop trying to debate people. <laughs> Believe them. Right. Nobody's making this up. Right. We don't, we don't have time for that. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's, yeah, it's that, it's that piece of examination and, and, and willingness. So what do you tell, but then what's the next step when you help that boss understand that, you know, it's, it's going on, even if you're not seeing it, 
then what do they do? What do you do about it? Um, you help them understand how to see it. Mm-hmm. You help them understand how to see it. You, you help them understand what the things are that, um, that they may not be aware of. You, you, help, you help expose them to how inequity shows up specifically in their business. You help them get in touch with what their customers are actually saying about them. You help mm-hmm. them get in touch with what their staff of color, you know, are actually saying about the business. You, 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 you know what you do? You um, indoctrinate them with the truth of their circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious what you think of some, you know, a lot of companies have made high profile decisions. I mean, right here, um, you look at our own Fortune 500s, you know, Target announcing a $2 billion commitment to work with black brands that might be vendors, that might be new products on the shelves. Best Buy saying that they're going to, you know, make significant hiring changes. Do you hear those things and go, yes, progress? Are you skeptical? What do you think? Um, I say yes and yes, do that and more. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, yes, it's it's a it's a it's a move in the right direction. Mm-hmm. It's a move in the right direction. I, like we talked about a little earlier, the fact that the conversation the conversation has shifted uh, in my lifetime. It's 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 shifted exponentially, and we just have to keep going, and we have to support that. And we also have to, you know, when companies are actually doing the right thing, let's support them in doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And let's continue to challenge them to keep to keep being better. Right. I think it's I think it's important that we that we yes, we name the progress and we take two seconds to say hip hip hooray, but we keep going. Yeah. Yeah. We keep going. Yeah. Um and of course for every target and Best Buy that can make these big sweeping billion dollar announcements, there are many, many, many others that are much smaller. You know, maybe you only have a team of of 10 people or 20, and maybe you don't have any diversity on your staff, but you also don't have the ability to hire right now. Mm -hmm. What do those kinds of companies do if they want to do something, but they're just, Mm -hmm. you know, they don't have a really obvious way to do it? You know, I think the obvious way to do it is to become Mm -hmm. (laughs) anti-racist. You know, if it's an all-white staff of anti-racist people, they can do a lot of things. (laughs) Okay. And that's what you teach. That's what you call the woke coach. Yeah, that's what I teach because, you know, it's not, we can't focus on the, the why we can't. We have to always focus on the how we can or what we can do because there is always something any one person can do, right? Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we're always at a point where we can do something. We can do something. And if it's a small company like that, um, it's, you know, if it's a nonprofit, who are you serving? Mm-hmm. Right. What, there's there's all kinds of intersections and, and conversations that can be had that can create more equity and can create um, better outcomes and circumstances for the people that they seek to serve. Yeah. 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 Um, what's on your must read list? What What do you tell, you know, all those people who are calling and messaging you? Where Where do they begin? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a book right now. So that's OK. <laughs> Let us know when it's out. I tell them that. Yeah, I'm I'm writing a book right now, and that that should be out this year. So I I tell folks to to wait for that. Um, but I think it it also it depends it depends on what their interests are as well. Mm-hmm. Because I also don't think that you know I I know some women who last year, um, bless their hearts, read um how to be an anti racist. Yes. And then they hired me to come into their book club to explain what they had read. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So so also just, you know, it it depends on what you're interested in. And I will just say there's a lot of information out there. Um, 
there's a lot of information out there, but um, there's there's a lot of good stuff that folks can read. I do think folks should pick up how to be an anti-racist if they are are serious about it and really really digging into it yeah. and wanting to 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 develop some practices. I think that's a, a good place. Um, I also think folks should read um, Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. I was just going to say it. That was the one that, for me, that was just the most mind-blowing and influential, I think. When I mm-hmm. think about this past year, that's the book that, that yeah. I hold up as yeah. really... That's a good one. Yes, it is worth everybody's time. And I'm proud to say that I didn't immediately call you after I read it. I just thought about it to myself and I left you alone. (laughs) You could have called me, Allison. You could have called me. You could have called me. So what is the, so I mean, at the same time that you're doing all of this really emotional, um, but I have to imagine very gratifying work, you're, you're also, there's the level of running a business. You now have several people who work for you. I have to imagine... You're in growth mode, yes. Unfortunately, because of events of this past year. So, so what's the future of Woke Coach? Oh my goodness! You know, for me, I try, I I think of myself as a visionary. So I'm always on to the next thing, and my team is always like, "But wait, we're here," <laughs> and I'm down the street somewhere. Um, I think one of the things that we want to do is continue to spark difference and difficult conversations. Yeah. Uh, continue to get folks to opt in. Uh, continue to see themselves to get folks to see themselves as a part of the solution. Um, but from a you know quite specifically from a business perspective, you know we've been doing a lot of work with uh, businesses, and we want to go back to doing some of that uh, individual work and working with people who might not work in a business or might have their own business and just need some support in their anti-racist journey. So we're we're looking to launch some products for folks who are really just wanting to opt in to the From Ally to Accomplice modules with us outside of the confines um, of their own businesses. So so that's what's on the horizon for us right now. That sounds great. Um, when you think about your whole journey that, that led you here to this work and this place and this moment, I mean, does it feel like this is what you're meant to be doing? You know, I could not imagine doing anything else. And I think about it often because it's, you know, on the days that you wake up and you're like, oh, you know, and I think about my life and I think about how blessed I am. And I say, you know, if you could do anything in the world, what would you do? Um, And it is what I am doing. Uh, These conversations mean everything to me. The level of engagement that I get to have with people is important. The, The conversations that we get to spark and the ideas that come out of that. And, you know, working with a company and from your first session to your third session, there's all there's already some change and some growth, and and going into places where people, um, I really want to make people fearless, right? Because a lot of people are so afraid to have the conversation, to do the thing that somebody's going to get mad at them, or you know they're going to get canceled. And I really just want people to feel like they can be fearless, especially if you're in the leadership, if you're in the C-suite, you can do anything, mm-hmm. right? Right, and that type of embracing of a a relentless, you know, inclusive culture, when you feel that happening at a leadership level, there's no way that that doesn't translate to everyone in the company. Mm -hmm. When people who work at every level feel empowered and they feel like they can show up as their full selves, they feel like they can offer their truth. Oh my goodness. That that's the most amazing feeling in the world. And the number one thing that we hear right now, sadly from BIPOC employees, is that they feel like they can't show up as their full selves. Still. And still, still. And so, you know, and, and people not understanding what it 
what their day to day is like mm -hmm. and how things are, how circumstances are different for them. And so it's um, opening up people's um, perceptions and perspectives. That is, that is what I live for. Yeah. When I'm in a space and I see someone just, and that light bulb just goes off and you're like, aha, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Relentlessly inclusive. I like that. Maybe you need a t-shirt that says that. I was going to say I, I do it, but I think Nike already did that. <laughs> yeah, kind of some, yeah, they might sue me. <laughs> but, Sina, you have done it. And, um, you know, really, kudos to you. I know you are making a difference to a lot of people and a lot of businesses here and uh, everywhere. So thank you for the work you're doing, and thanks for sharing a, a little bit of it with us. I hope more people will go and check out your your website and, and sign up for a conversation, and I'm glad you're getting paid for it. <laughs> Thank you, Allison. I really appreciate the opportunity to spend time with you. I appreciate it. Well, Sina gives us so much to think about, and I know these conversations are happening at companies all across the country right now. The question is, is it effective? For that, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Nikisha Lewis is the Associate Dean of Undergraduate and Accelerated Master's Programs. Nikisha, thanks for joining us. I know you know Sina on a personal level, so that makes this extra fun. Absolutely. So happy to be here. Sina is such a great friend and amazing uh, leader in this field. You, you definitely get a sense of her personality. It comes through. And, and you can see how effective she is working with whether it's individuals or groups of people. The question is, and I don't mean to be cynical, but is it leading to change right now? We've been talking, we've been meeting, we're having workshops. What's actually coming out of that? What are the results? Well, Allison, you're absolutely correct. We're doing a lot of different things. We have a lot of initiatives underway, programs that people are developing and I think all of that is amazing, but I think you bring out this excellent point. Is it effective, right? Are we moving the needle, not just in our basic numbers, but are we moving the needle in the culture of our organizations? And I would argue that it's mixed, right? A recent uh, Corn Ferry survey said 75% of professionals stated that their company has enhanced their DNI efforts during the last year. But mm -hmm. they said only about 19% of those ranked their efforts as effective, right? When we look hmm. at some of our numbers across a variety of different sectors, it's been noted that there's like this 4% phenomenon that's happening with even Black leaders, if we want to be specific, right? So whether you look at Fortune 500 C-suite executives that are Black, only at about 3.2%, some of the other industries still are only about 4%. And so as hmm. we look at this, the real question is not can we just have more conversations, but are those conversations leading to good change within our organizations that would make them more inclusive? As Sina would say, that we are res relentlessly pursuing this idea of being inclusive? Um, is it creating pipelines that are supportive of people moving and telling, moving up through these processes? Are we creating educational institutions that allow for that and create an environment where our students are ready to engage in that in such a way so that these great business leaders later? And so I mm -hmm. would argue that we're mixed, right? We still have a lot of work to do, but we definitely have to shift beyond just the conversations into some meaningful actions that will impact that. Right. And of course, Sina talks about not just having conversations, but really truly learning as an individual to be anti-racist. My question for you is, a lot of this work is happening at work, whether that's over Zoom or, or whatever. Is the corporate setting, is a business setting 
the best place to be doing this work and learning to be anti-racist? I would say the business setting is an excellent place to start. Um, I would also say that it will have to continue after they leave their workplace, right? And so I say that for a variety of reasons. As we think about our work environments and what motivates many of our people in these leadership positions, if we have a system in place that supports this type of learning, but not only supports it, but rewards it and offers merit towards it, then I think it's definitely an excellent place to start. Um, other ways to think about this is what, is what is the future for this organization? What are their goals when they think about that? And if this idea of creating an inclusive environment is important to them, it absolutely becomes relevant to what they are doing. And so I think it's a great place to start. I think it's um, a great way uh, for us to truly create and make the future of business unapologetically more inclusive and equitable. And for that, for Opus, is the common good in the way we do business. Right. That's what we all want, hopefully. Nikisha Lewis, thank you as always. We so appreciate your insights. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. And thanks so much for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas senior media relations manager vanita sakar and associate dean of the schultz school of entrepreneurship laura dunham for all their help our theme music is by song finch hope you enjoyed by all means (laughs) 